listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast. Each week, we focus on solutionaries with innovative solutions to some of the terrible problems facing our world. There are so many people who are giving us in-depth look at the problems that seem so overwhelming. Uh, we like to focus on the solutions. And today, we have two very special guests. Well, one is, uh, of course, super, super special. <laughs> you might guess the reason. It's Aura Canagas, who is the director of the American Friends Service Committee, Washington, D.C. office. She's the director of public policy. Uh, and along with uh, uh, my daughter, Or, we also have Merle Lefkoff, who is president of the Center for Emergent Diplomacy. Uh, and she does some very interesting behind-the-scenes, uh, uh, really innovative approaches toward diplomacy. Uh, we also have, as just, of course, all of you wonderful guests. And one of our uh, wonderful guests today is Hillel. Uh, Hadari, who is in Israel, uh, so he will have to leave early, so we will give him a chance to uh, comment uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes into the, into the talk here. Um, let me start by welcoming both of you and saying uh, how pleased I am to have you here on the podcast. Uh, let's uh, start with Aura to maybe give us a little introduction just briefly. I understand that the American Friends Service Committee was the winner of a Nobel Peace Prize in 1947. That's right. Um, and uh, you know, that, that reflected on our work um, through World War II um, and our, um, our work um, afterward, working on refugee resettlement. Um, and then um, based on that experience, we were asked in, in 48 to help with, with refugee resettlement um, in the Gaza Strip. Um, after, you know, after about a year of that, we said that um, it was time to um, have refugees returned. Um, that was our principle globally about refugees. They should have the right of return um, and handed over um, operations to the United Nations Relief Works Agency, which, as you know, continues today to administer um, programs for refugees uh, who have not been returned. Um, so since 48, AFSC has worked with Palestinians, with Israelis, and with the international community to realize a just and lasting peace between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, in the US, AFSC supports efforts to change government policies and corporate and institutional practices that support inequality, um, the Israeli occupation, and denial of refugees' rights. And in the region, AFSC challenges the fragmentation of Palestinian society and the militarization of Israeli society to support the implementation of international human and humanitarian and human rights law. Um, we work on um, promoting calls for full equality between Palestinians and Israelis and security for everyone. And um, so that's a little bit about what AFSC yeah, does. That seems to be a crucial uh, thing to develop our common security. Uh, let me let Merle just briefly jump in with an introduction to uh, uh, how the Center for Emergent Diplomacy is involved in the, in the Middle East. Our, our center is, um, for, for many decades, has been doing what's called track two diplomacy, which is back, back channel, um, usually quite secret. Um, for those of you who remember the Oslo process, that was a track two back channel process. And, th and that's what we do. And I've been working in the Middle East, specifically, mostly in Israel and Palestine for 40 years now. <laughs> and. Um, what our organization does now is um, we apply. I, I spent, I, I closed down our organization for four years. I got a grant to go to Los Alamos National Laboratory to the Center for Nonlinear Studies, which is a think tank at Los Alamos, believe it or not, that isn't thinking about nuclear weapons, but actually thinking about some other wonderful things. And um, because I wanted to work with physicists and mathematicians and computer scientists to see if there were any new ideas because because it was clear to me that peace was not happening in the Middle East, especially between Israel and Palestine, and that there probably was no chance that a two-state solution would ever happen. We have a one-state solution now, of course, with Israel, Israel in control. So I spent four years at the center, 
and we now apply the, con the principles actually and um, of complex adaptive systems that's been developed at the Santa Fe Institute. So the fact that I was in Santa Fe is what attracted me to looking for completely new problem solving processes, because it was clear to me that the old conflict resolution processes were not working. So we're, we're devoting now almost all our time to climate change work, climate catastrophe that's coming. I work with a lot of climate scientists now. And um, I'm also involved in a back channel project in Israel, Palestine, Jordan. In Gaza. So um, I'm happy to say what I can at this point about that. Um, I was actually in Israel uh, right before the pandemic hit. So I never give up hope. And I'm just so delighted, Arthur, that you want to do something on Israel and Palestine now. Right, it's, a, right. it's a really moment to do this. Thank you. Yes, well, uh, uh, thank you, and that sounds very intriguing, uh, and of course we know you have to keep it secret, but we will be interested in learning what, what we can about that. Uh, now, Aura, uh, maybe you can tell us a little more. Um, I know you've also, when you were in Israel, uh, experienced uh, much of the, what the occupation is about firsthand and so on. What are your perspectives now on what's going on in the Middle East, and what opportunities are there? You mentioned you're working for peaceful conflict resolution, where, where have there been successes and, uh, and what do you see as the uh, uh, way moving forward? Um, well, I'll start by saying that I was, I was a very reluctant, um, I was very re reluctant to come to this work. Um, my, my journey of understanding in this area was circuitous as I think it was for many of us. Um, and as you know, with, with Lithuanian Jews on one side of our family, um, I was acutely aware of the devastating impacts of the Holocaust, not just as a historical injustice, but in its impacts and generational trauma. Um, and as a third world studies major um, at Oberlin, I focused on Africa and Latin America. I, I avoided the Middle East as much as possible. It seemed complex. And I was full of what many now, you know, what, what I now understand were, were fairly Islamophobic biases about the treatment of women, et cetera, when so many cultures globally, including my own, have their own problematic gender biases as well as positive stories to model. So I, you know, I, I came in kind of hoping to not ever have to work on Middle East issues. Um, but the more I saw and the more I learned, um, the more I understood that this situation was not as complicated as it is often made out to be. Um, and that it, it comes down to human rights principles, um, just as, as so many other issues do. And, and Palestinians have a right to live in their historic lands. And that does not mean that Jews should not be able to do the same, but they, you know, but, but everyone has the same human rights. And um, that whatever state solution plays out needs to have at its base equality. Um, and um, so, I mean, I, I, I um, I can say a lot about a lot of different elements of this, but I mean, to me, you know, a, a right to fair livelihood and safety and equal protection against discrimination needs to belong to Jews globally, um, everywhere. Um, but whenever the paradigm becomes that my security um, is the preeminent concern at the price of your rights globally, that's, that's not justice. And um, those are the deeply unjust trade-offs we see so often whether it be in the US with policing domestically um, and how that plays out, um, whether it be the war on terror globally, um, whether it be how, you know, what happened um, with the Boers in South Africa. I mean, you often have an oppressed population that is seeking safety and well-being, and it often plays out in a way that um, displaces another. The US um, you have as a, as a history of people um, trying to escape religious persecution in Europe um, and coming and, and persecuting in an indigenous population. So I definitely, the, the decade of my career that I spent working on indigenous issues in the US also informs this um, for me. And I think um, in terms of solutions, I mean, we have a lot of time so we can, we can get into a, a lot of things, but I think a focus on equality, a focus on the human rights of, of everyone involved, a, a, a moving beyond sort of um, obsession with one state, two state, red state, blue state, um, and into, you know, 
what are the rights that everybody needs to have? Um, and, um, and I think, it, like the work of anti-racism, there's a perpetual process here that's not an event or arrival and requires a lot of self-examination and questioning the stories we're told about ourselves and our families and our communities and kind of stepping beyond a knee-jerk defensiveness. Um, you know, in, in the US, it's often like, my, well, my family never had slaves or I came from a poor family and I never had any white privilege or, um, oh, so we should abandon our houses now and give them to Native Americans. Um, it, it's moving beyond those sort of red herring defensive postures to really listen and understand the ways that systemic injustice plays out across generations. Um, so I think the solution lies in, in some of that return to human rights principles and, um, and certainly in, in, in addressing the $3.8 billion a year that the US provides to Israel in ways that there haven't been any forms of accountability. So it's been highly militarizing Israeli society um, and and a, a lot of effort to, um, you know, to equate any challenging of Israeli policies with anti-Semitism, which is, a, I think, an incredibly dangerous trend that that has had a lot of money behind it um, in the U.S. So I could um, listen to you forever. I just have to tell you that. <laughs> well, I want to briefly because you talked about the militarization of Israeli society and. Uh, since we do have Hillel with us for a little bit longer, I wonder if you might be able to tell us what you observe from the inside about the militarization yeah. of, of Israeli society and how that impacts uh, everything <clears throat> in your lives. Good morning for me, it's good night. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I would like to say, uh, to emphasize three uh, more specific points, uh, maybe not very smart and original, but still, I think it's important uh, for me to say it. Uh, so first of all, you know, in Israel, I'm considered to be a very extreme uh, left-wing, anti-militarism, anti-nationalism. And still, even from this point of view, still, I, I would like to say it very straightforward. Give me for the word I'm going to say now. I think that... Um, uh, even though I have a lot of criticism about Israel, about the Israeli government, I think uh, I'm not ashamed to say that uh, Hamas, you know Hamas, who govern, uh, governs uh, Gaza, they are just real bastards. I mean, uh, it's very important to understand. I'm not saying Israel is perfect, but they are a bunch of um, very extreme people, very primitive. They don't recognize the right of Israel to exist, regardless of how many territories you will give them. They just don't recognize the, the right of Israel to exist. They don't have any problem um, to, to hide bombs and missiles under hospitals, under schools. So they are just bad guys. I'm sorry to, to say it so, but, but uh, uh, I'm not that, I'm not that, that simple, okay? <laughs> uh, it is important for me to say, but still, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the problem, uh, the main problem, is not what happens when they shoot Israel and Israel uh, shoots back. Because, of course, if you are shot, it's your, I think it's natural, it's, it's even obvious that you have to shoot back to defend yourself. But the main problem is that, you know, in between all these fighting sessions, so to speak, you know, nothing is done. That's the problem. I mean, Nothing, I mean, the negotiation with the, with the Palestinians uh, is actually frozen for, for, I think, almost 10 years. Nothing is done, even though, if you know, the, the, we had the, the Oslo Agreement in the 90s, but still it is stuck for years. And then, okay, it's not very simple to, re, to restart it because, you know, there is Hamas in Gaza and there is the so-called Palestinian Authority slash Abu Mazen in, uh, in Judea and Samaria or West Bank, yeah. But still, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's such a shame that both sides, both uh, leaderships uh, don't do anything to, to restart this, uh, this negotiation. So uh, I think, if to sum up the, my second point, I think that the fact that till this very day, there is no overall complete agreement between the two sides, this is what leave, this what leaves the, the, the this conflict you know bleeding and I'm also sure that it affects the the conflict of Israel with other 
factors like, you know, with Iran, with, uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, and even with other Arabic states with which you don't, Israel doesn't really have war, but it's very cold relations. So for sure, for, uh, in my opinion, for sure, the, the, this future agreement with, with Israel with the Palestinians is a key, is a key thing to, 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 in order to do anything. Uh, in, to, to reach a real peace here. And my last point, my last point, even though I'm very much in favor of uh, Israeli-Palestinian agreement, which will for sure include a Palestinian state, uh, still, I don't really believe that this kind of agreement will uh, be a perfect solution. Maybe best case scenario, it will only start a very long process where uh, so maybe after 100 years or 50 years, there will be a real peace. And that's why, and this is my last, uh, my last uh, line, that's why I'm sure the only real complete solution for this conflict, like for many other conflicts in, all over the world, is to establish uh, a, world, a world democracy in which it will be very simple. Uh, f fights between two sides <laughs> will not be allowed. <laughs> So, yeah. My name is George Benker. I, I wonder whether you consider yourself a Zionist. Uh, well, no, actually, no. I, I, you know, if you, if you speak about Zionism in the original uh, meaning of the, of the word, so Zionism has completed already its, its uh, historic role, you know, because the Israeli state was established. So, you know, today when people use this word Zionist, the, the, each one means different things. But basically, I don't really care about these uh, definitions. I, I'm not, I don't see myself Zionist. I don't even see myself uh, a Jew. I don't see myself an Israeli. I mean, technically, I'm Israeli because I live in Tel Aviv. It's Israel, you know, but I don't, it's not part of my identity. It's not how I educate my, my kids. It's, I don't feel, uh, I, I don't care about all these things. Yeah, but I, I think the, you know, I, like, I do like the important point you raised that and which is really central to our work here. And that is that once you do have a, uh, once we can create a global democracy inside a country like the US, you can have Palestinians, Israelis, you can have all your differences and disagreements, but you're not fighting wars with each other, killing each other, you're finding uh, courts and other ways of interactively uh, resolving problems and getting to connect across the, the, the borders that divide us. and. So I do think in the long term, I appreciate your, your vision and being part of this. Um, I'd like to maybe talk to take that as a jumping off point to ask Merle, because uh, you talked about the crucialness of trying to negotiate some agreements. How do you negotiate agreements in a situation with such power disparities where, you know, where one, one group feels uh, they're occupied and uh, uh, well, just how do you how do you do that? How do you see the backdoor channels working to to create communication across such sharp divides? The asymmetry of power. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you for giving me a chance to say something. Is one of the critical problems here. Um, the Palestinians have no power, and also I was interested in the the leadership. Uh, question that came up, which is absolutely true. There's no leadership on either side right now. There is no way to negotiate until Netanyahu is gone, until the PAI that cleans up, cleans up their act. Um, or um, at any rate, let me tell you where we're going now, because this has to do with the idea of world citizenship. Um, we are destroying the biosphere at the present time. And one of the ways to get Israel to the table is on water issues. And that was one of the things a bunch of us got together to talk about here in, in the US who have been, working, have been working in the Middle East for decades, which was uh, Israel has a reason to come to the table because of the water issue because they are also having severe drought. Israel has a national, uh, a national water pipeline that makes sure that everybody in Israel gets water, but that doesn't happen in Gaza or in the occupied territories. So, um, but one of the problems as a result of this inability to share uh, or this, I, I don't understand this because Israelis are so smart. 
not understanding that it's in their interest <laughs> that everybody has enough water. There's a lot of wastewater, a lot of, please excuse my language, a lot of shit coming over the border from the occupied territories in the West Bank, uh, from Gaza. And so this is an increasing problem for Israel. Now this sounds very small, but this is part of the larger water issue. So at, at this moment in time, when more and more people are becoming focused on the calamities that are coming with climate destruction that have already begun and are going to hit the Middle East and already is beginning to harder than just about anywhere in the world. Sorry, my light just fell down again. Harder than any place in the world except perhaps the Arctic where I spent some time in the last two years also, where the, the ice is melting. I mean, that's, that's the place where it's happening the fastest. But um, we see this as an opportunity for some back-channel work, for some back-channel negotiations. So we have started a project that came to a halt, um, but it looks promising. Everybody is at the table. And um, it's all about wastewater to begin with. And then getting into the larger water issue. Water is life all over the planet. And um, we're just desperate for a way in now with the leadership absent on all sides. Uh, I truly believe that the two-state solution has been dead for 20 years now. And it's a distraction about what really needs to be done. And um, I'm not sure anything can be done until Netanyahu is gone, frankly. But we're trying. And it's a very back channel. But it's also non-threatening. But the security of Israel, as well as all of the Middle East, also depends on making sure that water is shared so that people don't become so desperate that they take up arms. The next war could be about water. I just published an article in, in the Canadian Army Journal about, as I think I sent you a copy of the, of the cover, Arthur, um, about what I called the new Cold War in the Arctic, because I had, we had been interviewing up there and um, we, we were interviewing um, actually indigenous leaders to see what was happening to them in the Arctic. But we also found out about all these military bases and this is what we call the new Cold War. And I noticed that last Sunday, we published a couple months ago, but the New York Times picked up on that and talked, it, it did a big article on the new Cold War in the Arctic. So here's the new hot war in the Middle East, right? And water is something that all world citizens need, Arthur, right? right. And water, and, and we are all at risk now because of, of what we're doing to uh, our living systems. So this might be a way to begin some collaboration. And in fact, we've found that to be true. Um, as I say, we've, we've had a little hiatus now because of the pandemic. Uh, Jordan is also involved because it's been, you, you know, they have many, many, many Syrian refugees there. Jordan is also in a lot of trouble where water is concerned. So Jordan has been brought into these negotiations as well. Um, I just want to briefly thank you for, for that, Merle, and, and share my screen to show you. Uh, you've just been mentioning that water is central to the two environment, but cooperation restoring hope in the Middle East this is echo peace. And they talk about the uh, border conflicts, Jordan River devastation, and the people, uh, right. how water is key to that issue. So I think you're on to a really uh, important topic there. Um, so let me go back to, uh, uh, going back to Aura yeah. and ask for her comments on uh, the question of, you know, that Hillel raised about the, the bitterness that's going on and how you see uh, moving forward across the, 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 the great divides. And one of, I want to just go back and talk about water for a moment because, um, you know, as you're probably very familiar, Merle, 96% um, of Gaza's water supply isn't fit for human consumption. Right. Um, and that situation is compounded and in part caused by repeated Israeli military attacks on Gaza that have damaged or destroyed key water and sanitation infrastructure. I've seen firsthand that in, in multiple visits over the last 10 years. Um, and the blockade has barred the repair and replacement of this infrastructure as key materials are prohibited by Israel from entering Gaza. Um, so many aspects of reconstruction um, are considered um, dual use. So you could, you could 
rebuild a house with lumber, but you could also build a tunnel. So you're not allowed to have lumber. Um, right. So the, 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 the blockade of Gaza is so severe um, and the, it, the life is just impossible. I mean, you have um, the Israeli military bombed Gaza's only power plant um, and in, in, in 2006 and, um, and today it still can't function at full capacity and Gazans have access to electricity for less than eight hours a day on a rolling basis. I was there, when I was there last, it was four hours a day um, and you never know when it's gonna come. So if it comes on at four in the morning, you quickly you know, do laundry and <laughs> do everything that you possibly need in the middle of the night. Um, and you know, I, I think when it comes to the water issue, um, there's drought and there are those common concerns and there's a very man-made disaster in, in, certainly in Gaza with the destruction of infrastructure um, and with the blockade that, that you know, disallows reconstruction and sanitation. Um, but, and in the West Bank as well, I mean, you, you see um, the, the, you know, as you, as you alluded, the extreme difference in what water resources are allowed, um, right. not just in Israel versus the West Bank, but settlers have access to very different resources. Um, Including swimming pools. You know, right. In illegal settlements. Yeah. Um, so again, it's, it's that, that combination of, um, of the, you know, the, the environmental crises with very man-made, human-made crises in this situation. And, and I think that brings me to something that I've had to grapple with, which is, um, you know, I, in, in my work, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Quaker and I deeply believe in dialogue and in peace building and have had to grapple with some of the ways that, um, that um, those concepts um, in this context um, have been weaponized in some ways so that, you know, we just need the two sides to come together and talk. Um, and as you said, Merle, like not addressing power differentials when you bring two sides together to talk um, is, is, is deadly and, you know, and basically recreates the oppressions that you might be there to talk about. It's often very edifying for the side with more power in that situation. They may learn a lot. Um, um, but those who are in the situation of oppression are, you know, sort of again and again forced to like deal with that re-wounding. Um, and I, I think um, that was a really hard learning curve for me. And, and one that when I got it was a, was a real aha for, um, you know, some of the things that sound good toward peace building can be can be really, really problematic. Um, so I, I think um, to what to what was raised about about Gaza and about um, Hamas, um, you know, yes, Hamas um, is a is a really problematic group, um, and it it has been born out of the politics of the situation um, where a population is so so oppressed that. They're looking for anyone who is going to stand up in some way, and um, you know, I, I, um, I think uh, I, I saw a piece recently that I just pulled up from um, um, a Jewish group in New Zealand um, that was saying that was speaking to sort of this set of points around um, in this era of accusations. How often do we condemn the speech? that hates and dehumanizes Palestinians in, in reference to the, the Hamas charter that, that, um, that is so often cited. We have to urgently equalize the hateful, deadly disparity we apply to the dense civilian military intermingling that prevails in both Israel and Gaza. Israel consistently ranks among the most militarized states on earth. Its ministry of defense stands in the commercial heart of Tel Aviv. You can't walk a block in Israel, Israeli cities without seeing weapons, some carried by men and women wearing uniforms and some not. Gaza is also militarized, some of it visible and some of it concealed, yet we allow ourselves to be told that Israel's army shields civilians while Gaza's civilians are deployed to shield Hamas fighters. Which is it? This perception conditions our understanding of justifiable and wrongful killing. Um, so I think that that question of who gets to be militarized and who, who um, you know, what, what forms of militarized security and response are okay or not okay is something that I think as a Quaker and, and working with a Quaker organization, we often, 
you know, are, are addressing the ways that state violence um, is sort of invisible and sanctioned, whereas, you know, other armed actors get called out. I think in general, again, it comes back to equality and a, a situation where we can't, um, we can't create security for any people in the region that is not shared security. Um, the well-being of everybody has to be accounted for if you want long-term well-being for anybody. Um, and, and so, yes, to what, to what Merle's saying about negotiating on water, I think that's a really important baseline trust-building piece. And I think um, challenging because there is this very human-made dimension to it. Aura, I, I said very briefly as we were just beginning that we don't, we're not working with any of the peace community. Mm -hmm. And the reason, uh, I'll be honest about it, is there's so much trauma in the peace community, especially among the few Israeli Jews that are courageous and take stands. By the way, that was an interesting uh, exchange at the beginning about, are you a Zionist? I think a better question is, do you believe that there has to be a Jewish state? That's very different than being a Zionist. And that's where the rubber meets the road because the Holocaust has not gone away. And that historic trauma, which is generational, is what keeps Jews, who are the, some, of the most some of the most powerful people in the world at every level, thinking that they're not secure. And, um, and so that historic, the history on both sides, you know, the Nakba in addition to the Holocaust, uh, those stories, as we know, we need new narratives. So the peace community has just, uh, you know, it, I hate to use the word failed. That's not fair, right? Everybody, everybody is trying. This new generation of Israeli Jews, I'm disappointed in. They all voted for, I, I looked at the statistics, they all voted for Netanyahu. Because Netanyahu says they, that they're secure and they can lie on their beaches uh, in Tel Aviv, right? So, um, so what we're, trying, what we're trying to do here, the people at the table, by the way, are water ministers, hydrologists, <laughs> techno guys, right? They all speak the same language. They have the same narrative, regardless of whether they're Jordanian, regardless of whether they live in Gaza and can get across and meet with us, or whether they're Palestinian or whether they're Israeli. They speak a common language. And, and they can talk about a common narrative. So that's what makes this more interesting to us. Uh, when I, I should tell you our big, I, I hate to jump around like this, but as Arthur knows, our biggest project right now is we're developing a training manual for a new kind of dialogue process that we call the adjacent possible. The adjacent possible is waiting for us out there, but we've got to change the way we do dialogue and the way we do negotiations. Uh, we can't continue to do them the same way because, frankly, it has worked. Look at the world now. So, um, so this, this may seem very kind of small, but we think that with, uh, with moving forward and getting some case studies and some interesting stuff out of this, we can talk about a different way of approaching this problem because the peace community has not been able to solve the problem. And we believe the solutions are there. We just haven't gone into a different kind of dialogue process in order to reach those solutions. Also, I have also been in dialogue on nuclear disarmament. You know this, Arthur, as well, with Iranians, with North Koreans, by the way, with Israelis, with, well, one Israeli delegate who wrote a book called The Best Kept Secret in the World, a terrific book on the nuclear program in Israel. And Israel does not admit does not today still admit that it has a nuclear program because it doesn't want to join any treaties. So it's not involved in any treaties. This is so complex on so many levels, but it all comes down to security and feeling secure. And so if we can't feel secure about water, right? And uh, then the rest of it is in a way meaningless and, and global climate catastrophe is upon us very, very quickly, according to the climate scientists that I work with now, and the Middle East especially hard hit. 
So we're coming in a different direction with, frankly, a different dialogue process, which we've begun to describe to some extent. We're writing a manual now. Um, I also teach in Canada at the University of Ottawa. So um, we're writing a training manual to train facilitators in a new kind of dialogue process that we call the adjacent possible. How to reach for those solutions, um, not to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? Because that, as we know, is the definition of insanity. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the horror that's going on over there and in so many places in the world also, is, is um, you, you just detailed some of that so beautifully. It is, is Israel, you know, they'll talk about the, about the, the missiles that they, the Gazans send over, that Hamas sends over. Um, the asymmetry, I think, is what's driving this toward its ultimate conclusion, which is that there's going to continue to be one Jewish Israeli state and what are Palestinians supposed to do? What are they supposed to do now? The PA is not helping. There's no leadership there either. Uh, there was some leadership. I was involved in negotiating. That's how long I've been going when, when we were negotiating with the PLO. So there was leadership at, at one point and there was hope at one point. And now there's just stagnation. As you as you said so so well, but I think the younger generation is is where there is something really interesting going on. I think I hope um, so. I haven't I seen it, so I hope you're that. right. The American Jew. Uh, let me say something about the young American Jews. I mean, one of the things we we never talk about is you want to end you want to end the militarization in the war. Stop funding it. Stop funding with three three point eight billion dollars. Right, it's the biggest foreign funding that we do. $3.8 billion so that this conflict can continue. But young American Jews at universities are being very courageous because it takes a lot of courage to say anything against the Israeli government. Because as you said earlier, Ari, you're accused of anti-Semitism. You wouldn't believe some of the hate mail I get as a, um, a, a, a self-hating Jew <laughs> that's that's what people call me all the time and i'm trying to make right there with you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so all right so we're yeah. trying something completely different Let, let's right. just put it that way what you were pointing out merle about about jews in the u.s i think groups like jewish voice for peace are are an amazing um amazing um sort of s stepping into the you know the um, the framings that have been used to shut down debate, shut down discussion. And I think, you know, you, you talked about the Israeli peace movement. Um, look up my colleague, Sahar Vardi. She is incredible and will give you some hope. Um, when, when, uh, she also lives an incredibly difficult life <laughs> um, I because imagine. of her resistance. But, right. um, and in Palestine, I think, you know, one of the pieces of work that we do in Palestine is on Palestinian cohesion and, um, yeah. building connections between Palestinians in, in, um, in Gaza, in the West Bank, and in what, what they call 48, Palestinians in Israel. Um, Are you talking to the new Palestinian um, party that now that has, what, four, four seats in the Knesset now? We're not involved in the politics side of things, but in terms of some of the people involved, they are, they are the kinds of people who are, again, working on Palestinian cohesion and and I think, you know, the, the Fatah Hamas, um, you know, uh, parties, you know, ha have basically been built to kind of keep things in place and keep, keep, um, right. keep people suppressed. And it's, it's um, you know, I think, you know, people in Gaza chose Hamas because they wanted something different. The incredible corruption of Fatah was, was very real. They were grappling with it. And you know, I think I've, you know, I've heard disillusionment from a lot of people in, in, in Gaza, but it, it certainly, the, the existence of Hamas is a symptom, not a cause of conflict in this situation. Um, and I want to come back to something you raised, Merle, that I think is really important, which is the question of a Jewish state, um, which is often held up as if you, if you challenge that right, you're, 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 it's an existential challenge to Israel or um, exactly. it's, a, it's an anti-Semitic right. challenge. But 
I mean, a, a right to be a Jewish state at essence means you either ethnically cleanse those who are numerically inconvenient, or you do not allow full democratic rights for a particular segment of the population. And that's an approach that we've largely rejected in the modern era in, in a lot of places. Um, but you know, it's, it's implied that opposing this approach is somehow anti-Jewish, which couldn't be further from the truth um, because Jews themselves have been victims of this global game of disappearing inconvenient populations in myriad ways um, right. beyond the horror of the Holocaust. I mean, the pogroms that long predated that horror, the discrimination that persists in many places today that impacts so many other communities. So a right to Jewish life and practice is consistent with universal human rights and absolutely something that must be protected. But a right to a Jewish state in a land that's, with a multitude of right. cultural and religious groups that are historically connected and currently present is a different matter. And I would say the same about an Islamic state or a Christian state or a state otherwise designated as primarily connected to and accountable to only one culture, race, religion, et cetera. It, it's yeah. not consistent with human rights. Or I, you know, I'm constantly challenging my Israeli Jewish friends and saying to them, especially the ones that are so brave, and we know they are there and resisting. Um, one of my best friends um, worked every day of her life um, on the Palestinian side to, to um, make sure the Palestinians who had been um, victimized by the IDF had their day in court and she's Jewish and Israeli. But when I asked her, I said, why can't there, I said, how do you have a Jewish state and have a democratic state at the same time? I, that seems to me a contradiction in terms. You can't have a theocracy and a democracy at the same time. And that's where, as I said, the rubber meets the road. The Jews have to have their own state. And um, even if you're a Zionist, I consider myself a Zionist because I believe, as what you said, that the Jews have a right to practice their religion and they have a, a right to be Jews. But do they have the right to have a theocratic state that puts, puts a large percentage of their population in um, the, kind of the kind of apartheid situation that we have? I worked in North, I, I worked both in Northern Ireland, by the way, um, and I, I see some, some intersections here. And I also worked in South Africa before, right before the end of apartheid. And so every, all, of these, all of these experiences are connected for me. And, and, I, and for one reason, I was asking you about this new thing among Palestinian citizens of Israel who are now kind of getting, for the first time ever, I believe, um, getting interested in the political system as a way in to, to get more of, uh, of their just basic needs met in the territories and in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't had, that's something brand new. We're watching that very closely. And in Northern Ireland, you know, when once the IRA got involved in the political process, that, that's when we knew that this, this Good Friday agreement was gonna hold. That's when we knew it would happen. Well, and so, yeah, anyway, there's, it's so complex and there's so much to talk about, sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's terrific, and I, and I think the common thread you both had is so, so crucial that we need to, uh, that, that to try to gain security and protection for your rights as, as Jewish people or as any people by, by totally, by militarization and trying to destroy the other, just keeps coming back and back and back. And the U.S., again, the most powerful nation in the world with bases all, all, all over the world is one of the most scared countries. Uh, and then we threaten nuclear destruction of the planet, you know, growing out of that, out of those fears. Uh, so I think it's so crucial that we start finding this common security and how we, how we break through. And so I'm so grateful to both of you. I'd like to turn it over to questions. I know we have a lot. And so uh, Melanie, take it. All right, boy, what an interesting discussion. Thank you for this great back and forth. It was beautiful, fantastic, so informative. Um, yes, we'd like to go to questions. Our first question we have is from Fried. Fried, go right ahead and ask your question. I am interested in solutions. So I always look for solutions. And there is a wonderful solution for Palestine since 2002. And it comes from Rand Corporation, which is normally not uh, such a good uh, place. <laughs> but here they have done a marvelous job to, to uh, ask who has an idea for 
to make uh, Palestine a viable state. And there was an American uh, uh, urban architecture bureau, Sussman Architects, who came up with a project, The Ark. I don't know if you ever heard about that. And the idea is that uh, <clears throat> Gaza would be connected via a high-speed train to uh, West Bank. And for this, in this would first become uh, uh, connected as a state. It would connect all the important cities in uh, um, Palestine. And it would keep the old cities aside, but in a connection via, I, I show another one. This is, this is the, the um, old city uh, at the outside of the, of the train line, the high-speed line. And then um, the city would be built towards the, the new uh, trail, uh, train station outside of the city. And then uh, all the needed uh, housing would be possible. It's a project of about 9 billion and it would give work for, for uh, hundreds of thousands of people per year. And what a good thing would be that it would build and not uh, so there was there would the the attention would change from destroying or uh, surviving to building hmm. and wow. i think it's an absolute uh, wonderful possibility and you can see at the website grants.org/palestine the whole project explained in 7 minutes and if you want longer for 30 minutes Great, thank you for you. Thank you for that educational uh, information and uh, very interesting, very interesting. Um, great, we have another. Okay, so yours would like to make a comment or a question. It's yours, if you like, could go right ahead, please. I did a PhD, uh, compressed PhD in peace and conflict resolution. And I learned about one-sided stories or single stories as they, they call them. Um, so on the previous uh, intervention by Fried, I wonder whether he is informed about uh, the airport in Gaza being funded by uh, European communities, then uh, built by the Israelis, Israeli uh, earning money, and then being bombed by the Israeli military. So whatever you would suggest, uh, make sure it can't be bombed by the Israelis, because I feel this story needs a little bit background information. Merle, I'm happy you share concerns about water. It's vital. I'm a nutritionist, so I know water comes before food. But how would you feel? Water shortage ranks among challenges for Palestinians, like expelled from their housing com continuously since 1984, 48, incarceration with a trial, violence by military, racist laws, and many other human rights violations. You can't do without water, but how do you feel the other uh, challenges for Palestinians? They're terrible. It's a, it's a collection of all the human rights abuses, in a way, that we talk about all over the world, and they're all happening here in one place. Truly, they are. But we can't stop that as we continue to, to support this with American money. We can't. You want to stop that part of it? Then, then make sure there's some kind of uprising that stops 3.8 billion dollars going to the Israeli military. Seriously, um, it, it is our biggest, it is our biggest foreign gift in America. So I, I you, people have been trying to stop what you, to stop the settlements, to stop this, this Israeli project uh, for decades and decades. So the fact, I consider that the climate catastrophe that's happening now provides something new. 
a new opening to think about this. And I want to get back to the ARC. I have a whole file on the ARC when it came out. I was so excited about this because it seemed to me that it was somebody else going out of the box and thinking beyond the human rights issues that everybody in the world is working on, including the United Nations. You know this. You know this. And haven't been able to do anything except extend the rhetoric over and over and over again. The ARC, the ARC is a visionary project about infrastructure and about infrastructure that collectively can bring people together in a new way. And it also didn't go anywhere except in the back of my mind. I remember there was a Palestinian, maybe a Palestinian American who was quite wealthy, a multimillionaire who went into the, it went into the territories and started building a new town based on the ARC principles. I'm wondering if, um, if Rabbi, do you know about that? Rabbi. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Has anything happened with that? Because I think- Oh was, yes, I have pictures of it. Okay, all right. So I love this idea. Um, and and if, we, if, we, if we let go of going after the human rights issues, this will be a tragedy for the Palestinians and for human rights all over the world. This, however, is not what we have chosen to work on because we are looking for new ideas, new visions, new narratives that perhaps can in intervene in this impasse. It is a complete and total impasse. So uh, do I think water is more important than the human rights issues? No, they're all the same. They're all connected for me. We need, we need all of these things to be human beings on this planet. But where are the new ideas, what we call the adjacent possibles? That's a complex systems term, by the way. Comes out of complexity science. Waiting, waiting for new imagination, right? You know, I like to quote Einstein on this. One of the, my favorite Einstein's quote, imagination is more important than knowledge. The great Einstein quote. So the, a, a project like the ARC was so imaginative, but at the same time, it had it had rigor behind it, right? It had rigor behind it. And that's what we're trying to do as well. Any ideas for solutions now, I think are worth trying at this time of impasse. But if you really wanna stop it, I'm a big believer in social movements, by the way. I'm from the South, so I lived through the civil rights movement. And now we have Black Lives Matter, which is making change every day. So, you know, let's, let's, let's try to defund the war. Yes, yes. Would you feel um, water is the, the biggest challenge for the Israelis and might rank like lower than five uh, on the list of the Palestinians? <laughs> I think it is, but I don't think people realize it yet. Okay. Honestly, I think it is because of climate change and they just haven't gotten there yet because Israel has this wonderful pipeline. But if that pipeline doesn't have water in it that's coming from the north, it doesn't matter how good the pipeline is. Thank you. Thank you, Merle. And we have a really a short time for a super quick question. First from Tom, if you'd like to go ahead, Tom. It's not really a question. Just in reading the comments, you know, I put a really long comment in there. And in reading other people's comments, there seems to be the general consensus that, number one, the Judaic religion is a religion. Zionism was created in the late 1800s as a political movement with real goals that were okay then. But the state of Israel has violated or not complied with nearly every resolution that the United Nations has put on them since 1948 when they became a state. And I believe that our world is crossing that threshold from the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. I don't live long enough to see it, but that threshold of going from religion and wars, we're crossing over a 200-year bridge, we're at the end of it, into the age of Aquarius, which is the age of technology and peace. And everything that everybody else has said today and shared, well, I'm with you 
Well, I'm with you 100%. Arthur, you know me. You know I'm with you 100%. That are, I'm an optimist. I'm not hoping. I know that our world is changing and that we will see real peace. We won't be spending the trillions of dollars on weapons, but we'll be spending it on ourselves, our lives, our infrastructure, uh, medical needs, everything else. Period. End of story. Thank you for giving me a few minutes. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Merle, or or did you wish to say something? No, no. I just want to thank, thank him for those comments. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Tom. And now, quick, 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 we have Joseph comments or comment or question, and then uh, we'll have to end. Having taught human rights for a number of years, I, uh, I always think of Shakespeare who said the devil can quote scripture if he will. And at the bottom of all this is uh, belief in dogma. As Howard Zinn used to say, Columbus used to cut off the ears of Indians for the blessed trinity. And <clears throat> having gone to the UN a lot, the, uh, Israel had said before the Human Rights Council, we have an eternal claim to that land. It's biblical. And um, I question that. And whenever I question that, people shudder and it's like they want to hit me in the face or something. I'm just questioning it. You know, let's, uh, let's talk about it. And it's a complicated issue because um, actually I am for Israel because Jews need a safe haven. Um, there's tremendous anti-Semitism out there and they need a safe haven. I just don't think it should be based on some type of biblical uh, dogma. And it's a tough issue. It's true that it comes down to that sense of safety and security, right? That sense of having been oppressed in many places, what is the answer for a safe, for, safe, for well-being? But I think you, as, as, as I had said at the beginning, I mean, that, the, the Boers were seeking a safe place to be when they went to South Africa and, and created the apartheid regime to create their security. Uh, the, in the US, um, you know, religious minorities who were persecuted came to the US to, to have a safe place to be and they deeply persecuted the indigenous people here. And, and so that sense that our safety can only be created by, um, by having our own thing and our own place that we control, um, and to, to the denial of the well-being of others around is, is, a, is a concept that has not served humanity well in so many places, in so many ways. And so what are the ways that we can really commit globally, universally to human rights in a way that says, that, that knits the, the structures that, that, um, that create that safety and well-being in ways that doesn't come at the expense of, of of somebody else's well-being, um, and I think that's you know that's that's one of the things that I've certainly learned from my father <laughs> over the years, um, and I think um, you know it, it just comes down to that again and again is is um, that 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 safety you can never be safe enough when your safety is coming at the expense of somebody else's well-being because they are going to come back and bite you. Or um, what if there were a new narrative for Israel that said? Um, anti-Semitism in the world is not the problem that you see in the press. Um, Jews are safer and more powerful than they have ever been. And for that reason, have the opportunity and the challenge to create uh, a new kind of a society. Um, I, I honestly don't believe that anti-Semitism is, is huge in the world. I mean, you and I can talk about the statistics on that. It, that is propaganda, I believe. And uh, it's perpetrated to continue to support what's the, the safety of the Jewish state. And that allows, that believing that allows the Israelis to bomb Gaza for their safety. Uh, Jews are not, uh, are, are not around the world at risk. They're some of the most powerful people and moneyed people in the world. And there's a whole history behind that too, as we know. So it's time to wake up to the facts and the reality of this, which is that this is a small minority of, of fundamentalist religious Jews who are keeping this going.
and have some allies in the United States who are also part of the American government. So they're in high positions as well. And it's true. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is to keep this program going. And, uh, and America has always been behind this and support, American Jews, and supported this. And we keep it going. As, as, a, as a Jew who raised my family in an Orthodox synagogue, I can tell you there is a pain in my heart every day of my life about this. And what is it going to take to change this situation? Because this is, this is, this is not acceptable. It's not acceptable for the principles of the, of the religious tradition that I was taught. I teach in a Buddhist Zen sem seminary now. I should mention that as well. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, so I challenge that part of the narrative that somehow Jews are not safe. I think they're safer than they've ever been and luckier than they've ever been and more privileged than they've ever been. So I want to say thank that. you. Yes, thank you, Merle. Thank you, ever. Thank you, Aura. My goodness, this is a tough. Uh, discussion and I really appreciate everyone being very kind to each other and listening and uh, the, it's been phenomenal so thank you for this and I will send it back to Arthur. Arthur take it away. Well thank you so much uh, this has been so really a fascinating discussion I wish we could could go on for hours but I know many people have to move on to other things. I want to just thank both <coughs> both of you so much uh, for joining us. I know it's a, a very busy time for, for both of you. Uh, and I think we're really on to something crucial here. We're seeing the world now veering toward a new Cold War with China, with Russia. We're seeing a, a inc an incredible mix of, of, of diversity and, and, and humanity arising, and at the same time, the threats intensifying. And I, I just hope that uh, uh, Tom is right, that that all emerges into a new era where we finally break through to uh, uh, what Gary called the people-powered planet or, or what he's calling the age of Aquarius, an age where we do really uh, find a way to get past this barrier to build peace in our world. Uh, I hope everyone will come back on uh, June 9th when we'll have Joanne DeFour, who is talking about nuclear weapons nowadays, uh, what you can know and do. And she has, uh, she's talked about how recent actions have sharply increased the danger of nuclear war. You know, we kind of think that was something in the past where people were growing up with that constant fear, but it really is uh, uh, becoming overwhelmingly dangerous at this point. And she's talking about uh, the evolution of the science that led to nuclear weapons and how weapons, anyway, the whole thing about how we can move that to the power of nonviolent resistance. So this will be very important. And then the week beyond that, we're having world beyond war. Uh, so do come every week, and I will now, uh, at the same time, and I will now uh, also, by the way, invite everyone to come, if you haven't yet uh, seen the film or signed up on our website, to go to theworldismycountry.com, let all your friends know that uh, they can now get tickets to the, uh, watch our movie right there online, uh, and that this is a way that we can come together to do uh, what's been talked about to help evolve this future we all want to live in. Uh, so Merle and Aura, uh, last comments and tell us how we get in touch and follow up with both of you. My last comment is that having been at, at Los Alamos for so long as a guest scientist, that Los Alamos National Laboratory is building the next generation of nuclear weapons. Maybe you'll join us next week if we talk no, about No, no, no. I can't. I can't. That I can't do. But thank you, Arthur. But I will be listening in. It's really important issue. Aura. Uh, Aura, thank you. I, I'm just so you. thrilled about Aura, meeting Aura and how wonderful to hear uh, her take on all of this. And I so, hope to continue our discussion. I, I just wanted to say that. And thank you to everybody who taps in and has some wonderful comments. I'm saving the chat. Arthur, thank you so much. Yes, in Melanie the chat, too. Melanie, thank her, uh, you. website, uh, emergentdiplomacy.org. Uh, uh, so, Aura, how do we get in touch with you and follow up um, with what AFSC is doing? Um, I, I welcome the discussion. I know it is a, an emotional one for, for many, and I know that um, uh, it, it's difficult to get a basis on, on facts in a situation where um, news sources can be so different. But I think, again, returning to that foundation of human rights and, and everybody having a, a right to, to security and well-being and what what does that look like in a non-militarized context um, is, is really um, important for us all to be, to be thinking about and focused on. 
Um, so, and I, I'm a few minutes late for a, for a congressional meeting, so I'm gonna, gonna okay. pop off and move on. Well, thank you everyone <laughs> and join us next week for another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.